0: Today we'll be talking about the blessed hope known as the rapture and we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, Starting in verse 13 if you want to turn there in your Bibles Rapture became a huge topic in the 1990s with the left behind series of books that came out uh, Talking about the end times beginning with the rapture um, But I think the the rapture has since fallen into a little bit of dispute um, also in the 1990s, early 2000s, we had a lot of groups out there claiming they knew exactly when the rapture was going to take place. And they put dates and times and everything else. Some of them, unfortunately, led their, their people into suicide packs. There are other people who kept claiming it's going to be on this particular day at this particular hour. Those days would come and go and nothing would happen. And so everybody's kind of was going... People don't know what they're talking about. And it it put the entire church um, under a microscope that was kind of undeserved, but it is what it is. And so today, as part of our Christianity 101 series, I want to look at what the Bible has to say about the rapture. The term rapture is not found in biblical text. It's kind of like the Trinity. It's it's describing something that we see very, very plainly within the Bible, and we gave it a name, but the, the word rapture doesn't exist within Scripture. I will also note that the word computer does not exist within Scripture at all. It is not in the Greek language. It is not in the Hebrew language. It is not in the revised text. It is nowhere in the Scriptures. But... This sermon was created on a computer. It was printed on a computer printer, so obviously computers exist. And just because the word does not appear in the Bible doesn't mean it does not exist. Within the assemblies of God, we call the rapture the blessed hope. It is something that we hope toward in our lives and something we hope to see. It describes that moment when Jesus comes back and takes all those who are living for him to heaven without experiencing death. And one of the primary scriptural references that we see for the rapture are found in the Apostle Paul's writings to the church of Thessalonica, Now Paul was taking the church of Thessalonica essentially through a Christianity 101 course when he was writing to them. He was telling them the importance of the basic truths of the gospel and then he went into talking about what will happen to those who die in Christ and not only those who die in Christ but those who are still alive and are left until he um, comes back to get them. So let's read this teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Fall asleep is a euphemism within the scriptures of dying in Christ. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now verse 16 starts the description of the rapture. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that as scary as dying can be, as scary as talking about the end times and how that can fill our our hearts with dread, the Bible is very plain here to tell us to encourage one another with these words, to encourage us to live for you, to encourage us to keep watch, to encourage us to live in such a way that when you return, you will be pleased in how we are living. Yes, amen. Father God, I thank you. I ask, Lord, that you open our hearts, minds, and spirits to hear your truth this morning. And I ask this in your name, amen. amen. So this sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We who are still alive We'll get to meet the Lord in the air. We don't don't have to die. We don't have to suffer. We just go right to Jesus to be with him in, uh, in heaven forever. Sounds awesome. So the question about the rapture that has gone throughout the centuries is when? When is this going to happen? People have been trying to figure this out for centuries, We've talked about people setting dates and times and and trying to find secret codes within the Bible to figure this out. And this isn't a new phenomenon. This isn't something that just happened in the 20th century. This is something that was even going on in Jesus' day. You remember one of the number one disciples, the, the Um, or excuse me, number one question the disciples are always asking Jesus is when is this going to happen? When are you going to take over? When do we get to enjoy the reward of following you? Well, Jesus consistently answered this question the same way. It didn't matter if it was before he went to the cross or after he went to the cross. Before he went to the cross, he said in Mark 13.32, he said, but about that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. After the resurrection, they figured, well, maybe Jesus will be more open with us now. Let's ask him again. When are you going to come back? When are you going to restore Israel? And Jesus said to them, "It is in Acts 1-7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. It's not for you to know. Now, when you were a child... What was the number one most frustrating thing you could hear from a parent when you asked a question? Because I said so, right? That's essentially kind of what God is telling us. He's saying, because I said so. I'm not going to try to explain it to you. I'm not going to try to to lower myself down and and get this on a level where you can understand it because I can't. You are not mature enough to understand it. You are not spiritually aware to understand the entire complexity of my sovereignty. So you are just going to have to trust me that I have your ultimate good in mind when I do not give you this date. Now, why do you think that God didn't put a date in the scriptures about the rapture? Why do we think that? Anybody? Anybody? That, yeah. That's a bit I'm sorry, what did you say? to fulfill the gospel to fulfill the spreading of the gospel. That's a good good answer. What's another one? Because we probably wouldn't be serving him like we should. Ding 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 ding. Think about a time when you may have been at work and the boss goes on vacation. It's kind of human nature that you're not going to probably work as hard as you normally would. It's, it's human nature. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm just saying it is kind of human nature that, hey, the boss is gone. You know, we know, like at the hospital, I probably shouldn't say this because it's going on tape, but um, <laughs> night shift at the hospital when none of the bosses are around, we're not really supposed to be eating at our workstations. Well, guess what we're doing? Eating, eating at our workstations. And, you know, just, just different things like that because we don't necessarily have the time to, to separate and go into the, to the lounge because we're so busy. So we're kind of eating and treating and washing our hands, eating, treating, washing our hands, going back and forth. And, and But we know that if the boss comes in at 5 a.m. at 4.50, everything disappears off the counters, right? That's kind of what would happen, I think, if God would have put that in the scriptures. If God, if, if, here, I'll throw it out there. The rapture will not have it on December 1st now, because I said it's going to. But let's just say for a moment that we have the rapture. I said the rapture will occur Jerusalem time at midnight, December 1st. Now, if I could get if I could convince you of this, what are you going to do, human nature-wise, between now and 11 o'clock or 11 p.m. Jerusalem time on December 1st. You're going to have fun, right? You're going you're gonna to have some fun, and then as soon as 11 o'clock hits, you're going to repent and then try to live for God again, right? That's, that's why God, I think, leaves us in this kind of, of uh, tension about that because he wants us to be on guard and be watchful for him coming back. Now turn over to Matthew 24. We don't necessarily have the time, but the Bible does give some hints about the condition of the world and the condition of people that will exist prior to him coming back and taking his church to be with him. Jesus tells us to keep watch. He doesn't want us slipping into sin. He doesn't want any chance of us going back in to the world and losing our salvation. So he gives us some hints within his scripture about when the um, rapture will occur. We know for, for example that throughout Scripture we know it's probably going to be before the tribulation begins. We're actually fairly sure of that. He uses um, Jesus himself uses the example of Noah and the ark. He didn't close the ark, when the floodwaters came, he closed the ark before the floodwaters came. So we think that the rapture is going to take place prior to the tribulation starting. And so he gives us some hints of the condition of the world immediately preceding the tribulation in Matthew 24, starting in verse 10. When he said, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's talking about how the world is going to look here. And in verse 12, it says that the increase of wickedness causes, excuse me, the love of most to grow cold. Now we need to clarify that word love. Because in our society today, this word love has been just torn apart and turned around on its head, and um, it now means in our culture something else. Love means, in our culture, love means tolerance. Love means letting everybody do what everybody wants to do. But love in the scripture, and particularly this lo- uh, word love here in Matthew 24, in the Greek word, there are several different words f- um, for the word love in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, in this case, it's using the word agape. Agape love, in the Greek language, speaks about um, a, a selfless, God-centered love that is concerned for the best for everyone around us. This expression of this kind of love is seeing God elevated in every way in a person's life so that God can bless us in the maximum way that he can, and that can flow into our eternal reward. Wickedness, on the other hand, seeks to extinguish that love and replace this love with happiness. Now, happiness is dangerous. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to be happy. But when you live your life focused on only being happy, you're on a very shaky path. Happiness is a temporary emotion based on a limited perception of external circumstances. Let me give you an example. If you have a person that is starving to death and they're wandering through the streets and they just feel like they're ready to drop dead, they haven't eaten in three days, and now they see a loaf of bread fall out of the back of a garbage truck and they run up to this bread and it's covered with mold and they start picking around the mold and they're eating it, they might be happy for a moment that they are able to eat something but that is not going to fulfill them long-term, will it? That's what sin is. It's a pursuit of happiness at the expense of long-term peace, joy, and the presence of God. And that's why we don't pursue it, pursue happiness. We pursue godly love expressed by joy. That's why pursuing only happiness in this life is what defines wickedness. It's ultimately self-defeating. When we pursue only trying to be happy about a temporary circumstance that we're in, it's like spiritual heroin. You know, I, I work a lot with people who, who inject heroin and who take heroin being in an emergency department. And they'll tell you if, you, if you get them to talk to you and you get them to try to get them into rehab and try to help them, they will tell you that they are continually chasing that first high. There is no high like the first high when you take heroin. It's a totally mind-altering, complete fill with happiness that you will ever experience, but you, because your brain chemistry changes at that moment, you can never experience it again. And they are, their whole life focus is chasing that high. They, they inject more, they inject different kinds, they, they, they mix it with other things, and they're always trying to chase that high. And that's what sin really is. You will never, ever be filled with happiness or joy or anything that is worthy of chasing apart from pursuing God. That's a condition of the world prior to the rapture. In large part, it describes our culture today. The pursuit of happiness over the pursuit of God you still have your Bibles open, turn them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. What we've seen in the world is first seen in an individual. And the Apostle Paul spoke spoke prophetically to young Pastor Timothy about how the individual people, particularly those who don't follow Christ, how they will look in the days before the rapture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul tells Pastor Timothy, he says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. That's a pretty bleak summation of how humanity will look immediately before the rapture. And that's what we see with a a certain kind of supposedly tolerant portion of our nation today. People will be protesting intolerance of sinful choices and lifestyles with acts of extreme violence now. These are people who have embraced the lie. The Bible is very clear about sin. If you choose sin, it's because you've loved darkness more than the light. And that is what has gripped our culture today. I don't remember if I read this or is this is something that the Holy Spirit showed me a while ago. But it's a saying. It says, what the heart desires, the will seeks, and then the mind rationalizes. If you really, really want something, you will talk yourself into it if you don't guard your heart. That's a condition of the world and of people who don't know Jesus, and particularly immediately before the rapture. We see Scripture being fulfilled in our day, don't we? Now let's turn in our Bibles and see what Jesus will be looking for in the generation that will enjoy that blessed hope of the rapture. There's a whole chapter of the Bible dedicated to this. Turn in your Bibles to chapter or Matthew 25. I'm going to frame this next part of the message by asking another question. What is the point of the rapture? What do we think the point of Jesus coming back and getting us is? Anybody? Take us home, but is that is, is that the what's the big reason do you think? To save they are worthy and worthy ones. We escape judgment of the of the world. world. I think I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's one of the ones that we focus the most of is to escape that judgment. So what do you think those who are raptured will be doing in heaven when, as soon as we get there? I mean, worshiping Jesus, of course, enjoying the, the wonders of heaven and, and having our resurrected bodies and all that. We'll, we'll be. That's, that's part of it. Immediately upon the rapture, we will be attending the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a marriage celebration, or a marriage reception, if you will, of the church being spiritually married to Jesus at that point. It's a huge celebration. It's a huge feast. Most theologians believe it's going to last for at least 10 years before the tribulation is even going to start. Now, why is that concept important to the rapture? Because when a bride is about to be married, Does the bride, like two hours before the wedding, find a barn somewhere and go out and shuck some stalls? Does she go and maybe bale some hay or maybe go wrestle some pigs and then like run into the church? (coughs) No. She makes herself ready. Most brides will spend weeks getting ready. They'll pick out the dress. They'll get the dress size. They'll do their makeup. They'll do their hair. They'll go through all these things. They'll make sure they're, 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 um, they're, what do you call the ladies? Attendance. The attendants. Yeah, they'll make sure the attendants are all, are all set. They really, really plan this out. And she wants to do everything she can to make herself beautiful to the groom that's the heart of a person who will be raptured. It's going to be our worship of Christ in every part of our lives that will make us beautiful to him. Because God loves his son. Nobody loves like God. And God loves his son. And he will not give him a sloppy, indifferent, or lackadaisical bride. He wants a bride that has made herself ready. Now keep that premise in mind as we study Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus switches from talking about the end times in Matthew 24, and now he starts to talk about the time when he comes to get his bride, the church. He tells three different parables to describe this event and what would be required to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb. The first parable is the parable of the virgins. This parable describes the heart condition of those who will be taken in the rapture and those who will be left behind. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 1, Jesus says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Verse 13, therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, in this parable, you see two groups of people you see the wise virgins and the foolish virgins. The wise virgins kept themselves ready for the bridegroom's return, while the foolish virgins were lazy and distracted by earthly pursuits. The key verse of this parable is verse 13. Therefore, keep watch. In the military, my unit was going through, was called, at that time, it was called the, e, the E-test or something like that, and it was a it's a test of um, readiness that all military units had to go through, and part of it was because we were we were part of a combat field artillery battery. My particular battery was the service battery, which means we supplied um, food and ammo and everything else and mechanics and all that to everyone else, and so we had to. Um, learn that even though we're kind of way behind the lines that we had to learn to be able to defend ourselves because one of the enemy's primary ways of taking out the military is to disrupt supply lines so they would put their special forces behind the lines to try to take us out so we had to defend ourselves and so we had um, we were out in the field at Fort McCoy and we uh, were going to be tested in this and rumor had it is that they actually had a ranger platoon coming to do the test on us? Now, rangers are the special forces, so you know we have to be really ready for these guys, right? And one of our senior NCOs thought he heard in the mess hall that they were going to be coming at 2300 on Thursday night. So at 2300 at Thursday night, we were set. The first sergeant says, "John, you have infantry experience. You're a new sergeant. I'm placing you in charge of our defenses. I want you to go set them up and and have you know." defense and depth and all that kind of stuff that we worry about and make sure we are ready. So I went out and I set up the listening post, the observation post, set up trip flares, booby traps, non-lethal, of course, and all this kind of things to make sure we were ready. Everybody stood to at 2300 and we were ready. We're listening, every twig that broke, every time a a leaf fell off of a tree, everybody's like, oh, you know, getting ready to shoot at something, right? So 2300, nothing happens. Twenty-three fifteen, nothing happens. Twenty-three thirty, nothing happens at all. And I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder if they got lost. You know, I mean, because we were kind of way in the back corner of Fort McCoy, and it was kind of hard to get to us. I'm thinking, you know, they're rangers though; they're they're experts in land nav. They think they'd be able to find us. And so, twenty-four hundred midnight comes, nothing. O one hundred, I'm doing my rounds. Of the, of the LPOPs, and looking and finding guys that are starting to fall asleep, and I'm waking them up and saying, hey, they're, they're still coming sometime tonight. We know they're coming tonight. We just don't know quite when. And so I'm waking people up. I make my rounds at 02.15. there's op There's listening posts that are no longer there because somebody came along and told them that it's not happening tonight. Go back to bed. So I had to go get those guys out of bed and get them back into their spots. And nobody started to take this seriously. They're like, ah, this ain't ever going to happen. It's been so long. It's never, ever going to happen. So I get these guys back out on their posts, get them to stand too. i I'm starting to get a. It's 3.30 now. I'm starting to get a little crabby. I'm like, come on. I've been up all night. I was up all night for the previous night because I was on watch. I'm like, come on. These guys are never going to come. 3.45, trip flares start going off. And all of a sudden, everybody's rocking with gunfire. That's when they decided to assault. They had been sitting there watching since 9 o'clock the previous night to see which people fell asleep. And those people got tackled and had a red mark drawn across there with a red permanent marker to say, you fell asleep on guard, and now you're dead. Not only are you dead but all those you're supposed to be guarding are now dead. They failed to keep watch. That's the point I'm trying to convey, is as Christians, we know we live in enemy territory. We know that attacks from the kingdoms of darkness will come. We're living in evil days, and it seems like Jesus is taking forever to fulfill his promise to come back. And the enemy is scouting us out. He's always looking for a way to wear us down, to make us fall asleep, to sow fear, doubt, and unbelief in the word of God within our spirits, and try to destroy our salvation. But like good soldiers, we need good discipline to help us to stay awake and to keep watch for when he comes. The second parable is found in Luke 25, starting in verse 14. And this shows us the judgment seat of Christ. For time's sake, I'm going to condense it a little bit. But I encourage you to read and meditate on this and see what God will speak to you through it. This parable tells a story of a master who was going away on a long journey. He has three servants. One servant he gives five talents to. Talents is just a measure of money back then. He gives five talents to one servant, two ter- um, talents to another servant and one talent to the final servant. He then goes away for a long time and when he returns, he calls the servants to him to see what they did with the money that he gave them. Now the first two servants, the one with the five talents and the one with the two talents, they went and invested the money and had a huge return for the master when he came back. They, the one that had five talents earned five more. The one that had two talents earned two more. And they they were met with effusive praise from their master. But the person with the one talent went out and buried it somewhere because he was calling into, he didn't trust the master. He didn't think the master was good to his word. He went out and buried it and was only able to bring back some coin that probably had some worm or something on it and some dirt, and give it back to his master and say, well, I didn't think you were really serious, and I didn't think you were really going to be faithful to me, so here you go. That servant was met by a great deal of anger, and the master was furious and throws the last servant into the darkness. What, is, what this parable is doing is describing the judgment seat of Christ. This is going to occur either right before or during the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is where Jesus is going to judge each one of us on what we do for him in his life. Now if you replace the word talents or money with your giftings that he has given you, or your talents, your your natural abilities that he has given you, or the resources that he has given us to serve in his life, it will begin to make more sense in what it means for us today. So I will ask you, will you show an increase for what he has blessed you with? Or will you allow fear or the pleasures of this life to rob you of an eternal reward? Or worse, will you allow the things of this life to rob you of your place in the rapture? That's one of the ways the outer darkness can be interpreted here. If you're left behind, you're going to be facing the tribulation. That's going to be hell on earth. I don't know if you've read Revelation, but you don't want to be here to see it. Most likely, if you repent and choose to follow him during this time, you will most likely give your life when the Antichrist begins to persecute Christians. What God will judge us on ultimately boils down to worship. Is your worship pure and, and primary in your life, or is it a secondary or even tertiary con- uh, consideration in your life? You see, worship isn't just about singing songs on Sunday morning. It is, it's an expression of what you consider most worthy in your life. Worship will be determine the heart conditions required for the believers to not be left behind when the trumpet sounds. So will you be keeping watch? And will you be serving him with every war resource that Jesus has given you? In the video we watched at the beginning of the message, the trumpet sounded. And most of the people, glory to God, in that church disappeared. And we're taken bodily to heaven to be with Jesus forever. But we do note there were some that were left behind. Those are the people who just play at going to church, but they never really commit, never truly surrender to Jesus. It's not just about church membership. There, you can, your, church, your name can be on a church membership roll and not be saved. It happens. We ask, have you accepted Christ as Savior when we invite you to become members? And if you say yes, we take your word for it. But Jesus is your entrance into heaven. I ask you this morning, are you ready? If the trumpet were to sound right now before I finish this sentence, okay? if it were to happen right now, would you be here or there? Because there isn't anything else, prophetically or biblically speaking, nothing else has to happen. He could come back today, next week, 100 years from now, but he is coming back. That's right, amen. Are you ready? I'm going to take just a little bit of time at the end of service here, just in silence. Holy Spirit, I ask that you search us and know us. And if there is anyone here who is not absolutely convinced and sure of their salvation, that you would fix that right now. Help them to surrender totally to you. Or if there are those who are like the foolish virgins, who have let the things of this life distract them from an honest pursuit of you, or are letting things in your life start to cloud their view of you, I ask that you remove them right now by the power of your name and let them surrender anew to you.